Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to The Prestige, a podcast about films by people who love films, for people who love films. Um, I'm Sam, I'm an academic, a writer, teacher, teacher first and foremost now, um, and I have spent many years looking into theories and reading lots of books and having little money because of it. Um, and as a result, I know lots about the, the technical aspects of narrative. And he's Rob, and he's a podcaster, editor, um, lots of other things. One of those strings is Bo was, he spent just about 10 years in the movie business, and he knows the sort of practical side, the nuts and bolts. So this is what we bring to each episode, the more theoretical aspects from me and then the more practical know-how from Rob. And we take a different film each week and we look at it in terms of various themes and ideas and we end each episode with our recommendations for films based on the actors and directors involved or more generally, thematically. And we always start with what else we've been watching other than the film of the week. So, Rob, what about you? So I am trying to, as I do every December, trying to catch up on the films that I've missed this year um, and the films that I just haven't got round to because of one reason or another. Um, this year, obviously, a lot of it's been down to access um, and also the crushing anxiety of a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> so this week I have seen a film which absolutely blew me away and I really deeply, deeply loved. And that is the film from Kelly Reichardt called First Cow. This is a American period drama um, set in the 1820s about two men in the Oregon, count- Oregon County um, in America frontiersmen, pioneersmen, I suppose, who find each other, find some sort of bond between them and start an enterprise selling what they call oily cakes to the local miners and workmen and trappers and all of that kind of thing. The wrinkle in the tale being that the milk that they use for these cakes is stolen every night from the single cow in the territory that is owned by the commander of the territory. They sneak in and they take milk to make these cakes. This premise makes it sound far more high adventure than it is. This film is more a meditation on friendship and connection and masculinity and capitalism and the American dream and all these kind of things. It is beautifully sweet and deeply tragic and it really snuck up on me in a way that I wasn't thinking to be I think so often period dramas and period films 
I'm the first to say I don't really fancy all of the pomp and circumstance that comes with it. But this used its framing to really tell something quite profound. Um, and I'm still turning over in my head days later. Um, it is a slow film. It is a beautiful film. And I strongly recommend it to anyone who's any interest in kind of films that say things, films that lay out their stall quite clearly and have something to say. I just, I, I absolutely rave about it. Say it first, Cal. Five stars for me. Absolutely five stars. Brilliant. All right, you, Sam. Well, I'm going to mention something, and Rob, you're going to have to stick with me this. If I just told you what this is about, you'd, you'd have no interest in this at all. Um, it's uh, a documentary following Tottenham Hotspur Football Club for the whole of the 2019-20 season. Um, and bringing a new manager in and then coping with, with the pandemic and it, it sounds if, if you're not interested in football it sounds deathly dull so why you, I, can, I can hear Rob switching off um, but stick with me because this is there's something really attractive aesthetically about it and there's something sort of really engaging about it and it's kind of it feels a bit like a nature documentary, the way you watch like a really well-made nature documentary, not not because you're really interested in wildebeest, but just for the look of it. So, I would I'm I'm not saying that Rob, you should definitely watch ten hours of a football documentary, but I'm saying there is something to be found in this, not not just for diehard football fans. It was it's. There's a suite of them now in in Amazon Prime, and I think they started with um, NFL um, or a college football team. Um, So there's a suite of um, directors taking on sporting subjects like this and using documentary footage to do so. Um, So yes, it's not not just for diehard fans, and this this struck me as something that's. It's actually really well made and enjoyable. And come on, let's face it, it's 2020. What else have I got to watch? That's a fair point. And uh, I will say you lost me at the bit at the start, but maybe yes. we'll be back at the end there. So uh, we'll see how you get on with that one. Yeah, I knew I would. <laughs> so this, guy, this mini season, guys, is part of our fourth season. We are looking at Disney live action remakes. Um, and I think we will probably be discussing what is meant by live action um, in greater detail as we go forwards. Um, but last week we looked at the original Jungle Book movie, and this week we are picking up with the 2016 film of the same name. Are you alone out here? What are you doing so deep in the jungle? Don't you know what you are? I know what you are. I know where you came from. Poor, sweet little cub. 
you close. Let go of your fear now. And trust in me. Jungle Book film from 2016 essentially follows the same scaffolding structure as the previous offering. It tells the tale of Mowgli, a man club raised in the uh, Indian jungle by a pack of wolves who is sent to return to his man village and about the people and the animals and the journey he goes on to get him to that um, village or not as the case may be. The film hits many similar points to the first one, but does diverge in certain ways. It's about 20 minutes, 30 minutes longer. Um, and it has certainly has fleshed out some characters and changed the tone, certainly. Sam, we are both pretty positive when it came to the 60s version. How did you find the 2016 remake? I really enjoyed it when I saw it. I saw it when it came out of the cinema, and this, I mean, didn't change my perception of it. It is a really enjoyable film, and one thing, one thing was very interesting actually, seeing it back straight after the '67 film was just how much. I mean, you've already talked about the changes in tone, and it just feels a much darker film, and a film that is focused on a almost completely different story and I really enjoyed that. So yes, I, I did I did like it. Um like from the very beginning when you have the Disney title card and the pull away shot through the undergrowth through the jungle. Um, and yeah, okay, I'm not sure how much of this could be called animation, but it's that's that's what we have a pull away through an animated landscape. Um, yeah, I really t- did enjoy it. Um, I like. I mean, you talked about the bits that are added and the the opening scene at Peace Rock. I think is brilliant. Um, <clears throat> and that's something that's definitely been added. Um, I think. Um, Idris Elba brings something to Shikhan that was kind of there's something almost pantomime about Shikhan in the nineteen sixty seven film that was just like the the British baddie and he's not really that scary because of it. No. So you can think, okay, well this is this is a stereotype, this is a stock character and I'm kind of laughing a bit about the fact that this this posh British actor is thought of as as something scary, but Idris Elba is really really intimidating. Yeah, yeah. I think 
I don't think I'm as keen on it as you are. I will say that. Okay. Um, I think the film, the film felt disjointed in places. Um, as you say, it is certainly a darker movie than the first one. Um, the first one is fun and zany um, in many ways, and I mean, Shere Khan is is scary in the first one, but he's probably it in terms of bad guys in the original. Um, and he, as you say, he's more pantomime than anything else. Whereas in this, many of the antagonists are deeply scary. King Louis is a scary character. Ra is a scary mm. character. And and Shere Khan is a vicious, vicious character. Um, so that was very, very, not scary because it's still a kid's film, but they were playing on the scare factors. And there were certain elements you could see, particularly in the opening shot when they're running through the forest. Like you're getting the POV of a hunter's image. Like it, it is, it's just, you know, Balgira teaching him, but you still get that same POV shot. Um, as if it's a stalker or a slasher chasing somebody. But then mm. you throw in that you've got Bill Murray as Baloo, who's very much playing it like the original. He's very much playing a slightly silly buffoon character. Um, and the interaction with him and the pangolin and all of those kind of people, like, that felt much more like the original. I think sometimes it felt, it felt disjointed between those two things. Yeah, I can see, I can see that. I, I feel like I forgave it that and I was more impressed by the darker bits. I was, was inclined to forget about the other bits, the these the more knockabout bits with Blue. And yeah, I see see what you're saying and I, I think looking back at it maybe I'm 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 I've overlooked the just disjointed nature of it. And and that's fine. I mean this is the first time I've seen it, I must say. Um and I think <laughs> I think as a whole, it didn't coalesce for me. That being said, overall, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the movie. I think that the effects and the sort of visual stylings of almost all the characters really were, I was really concerned about how these cartoon characters would play in a real life version. Mm. And I think that really, really worked. I think those, I can't, I can't think of a character that didn't pull off that sort of tension between looking real and also being sort of somehow humanistic. Um, so I think that really worked. I think, I don't know. I think Shere Khan, maybe this is just my expectations coming from that original. Um, Shere Khan for me felt like deeply darker and angrier character. Mm. Um, whereas the, Original, as we discussed last week, you felt genuinely understood that this Shere Khan was scared of being killed by man. He was scared of fire. He was scared of um, the guns. Like he, whilst he was the antagonist of the movie, you saw where he was coming from. Whereas in this, like the backstory is that he once attacked, viciously attacked a man and baby on the street, and the baby survived. And it's like by tying Shere Khan into Mowgli's origin, like. You don't explain that like, Shikan started off vicious and angry. Yeah, I can see that. I I think though that that speech at the end that he gives, I really sided with him at the beginning of that because of the backdrop of what Mowgli had done, 
and dropping the embers from his torch. And okay, he he had good intentions and he wanted to rid the jungle of a predator and didn't want his friends to be scared and he was angry about Akela, but mm. he had all these good intentions and yet he brought destruction like man does with his red fire. And I could like totally see Shere Khan's point then. When Shere Khan said, fine, kill me, do what you're expected to do. I thought, actually, that was really clever. I understand that. I think there's there's a there's a change in Mowgli that in the first one he is a happy, lucky kid who is innocent and light and mm. innocent of all crimes. And here they do add in you know, the element of man as man as not being a wholly good thing. I mean, obviously the original was written at a time in which you probably have a bit more of a manifest destiny of humanity, I suppose, as a as a cultural thing whereas here there's more examination of like this is a natural place natural order as it were um and there's a lot to talk about the natural order of the things and that the inclusion of a man cub changes that and the destructive power of fire itself changes things in the same way that the existence of a nuclear bomb changed the world even before it was fired like the fact that it exists the weight of that distorts the world. And the mm. same thing here, the destructive power of fire to, you know, like Shere Khan is an angry, violent predator, but he can probably only kill one thing at a time. You know, yeah. once you bring in fire, which can burn down the jungle, like the, the tables are so stacked. Mm. And I can see how the film has done more to not balance that, but discuss that. You know, present that as something to talk about. The idea that Mowgli, through his actions, is not like you can't just act. Like you have to think about all these things and the thought and the thoughtlessness of his action. Yeah, is what's caused some of the trouble. That really caught me at the end. That it it was presented as, oh yeah, he was doing this for his friends, and okay, he made a mistake in burning down a bit of the jungle, but then. Everything was all right, and he got the rivers rerouted through his connection with the elephants, and that was all fine. And I ended up thinking, well, no, that wasn't all fine. He still, like, he still burned down a whole load of trees, and he still did something wrong. And okay, at the end of it, he diverts some water, and hooray, the fire's gone. But I was left with that impression that no, he's still made his mark as a man in this jungle. So as much as there was that um, kind, of, kind of the message about unity at the end and the message mm. about togetherness and friendship, I was left thinking, well, no, for me, this feels like a film about individuality and being on your own because that's what Mowgli is. I think, I understand that. I think it's about, the way I saw that ending is the important moment is not the fire itself but in his abandonment of the fire mm. that he it set up him him and Shere Khan are these kind of mirror image antagonists who are bending the jungle under the weight of them jungle like Shere Khan breaks the rules of the jungle by killing Arkela and like he disrespects those rules as much as at the start you know the whole water truce thing sets up the idea that this jungle has rules and there are understanding that 
people can coexist by following the rules that Shere Khan broke those rules by what he did and Mowgli broke those rules by what he did so both of them have had these transgressions in their actions and both saw the transgressions but only Mowgli set aside what he had in his power to defend himself but in doing so would cost the jungle Mm. So his relinquishing of that power is what allows for the redemptive ending because he's looked at himself as an individual and he's looked at himself as part of this larger pack, be it the wolf pack, but the, be it the jungle as a whole, and has accepted within his individuality, within him as a man, also his place within the circle of life within the um that's another film within the structure of the jungle that mm. i'm not saying it's a case of you know shut up and play your part which could be a reading of this film but it's more about understanding that this is his home these are his people and that he needs to be himself but also understand how being him no, no man is not you know he can be himself but also be a wolf and a friend to Algira and Baloo whereas Shere Khan can't Shere Khan can't look past his personal grudge, his personal vengeance, to understand where he sits, albeit near the top, he sits in the ecosystem of the jungle. And that's what my reading of the ending was, is that he Shere Khan's inability to change, Shere Khan's inability to see beyond himself, to be less selfish, coming up yeah. against Mowgli's inventiveness his humanity and his animal life being joined together that's yes. what redeems Mowgli is by his place that thing about you saying about change is really interesting because this film starts and ends with a dead branch mm. and at the beginning he is scuppered by a dead branch and he he this is the reason why he can't compete as a wolf. And at the end, he uses the dead branch to his advantage. And he's come to realise that it's not about thinking like a wolf. He's, he's been told by a killer, he's been told by the people that you've got to be more like a wolf, you've got to drop your tricks. Mm. And he's realised that, well, no, the way to survive in the jungle and the way to... Way to I suppose the way to beat Shere Khan is, is to change, to adapt, and to recognise that it's it's important to act like a man if I can get an advantage as a man. Well, I think that's where the, the dead branch analogy is great at the start. The, the dead branch is dangerous. The dead branch is in the jungle and is dangerous because of it's dead. Whereas at the end, the dead branch is useful because by realising what a dead branch can do... Yeah. You can make it part of the solution. And that that's Mowgli. The start, Mowgli, he's still a dead branch because obviously he's the only man in the jungle. He can't be a tree. There's no roots to that. There's no future to that. But by accepting that a dead branch probably can't be used for walking on, but can be used for something else, that's how he survives and the jungle survives. Mm. Yeah. So I think I mean, we talked about individuality as a... um a theme for this, and I think that's very important, but it's this idea of individuality within a yes. structure, 
um, and within a community. And I mean, John Favreau directed this, and I think you can see that in a lot of his work, the idea of an individual and of individual talent with individual skills, but how that falls into a larger group. I mean, I don't know if, have you been watching Mandalorian, Sam, at all? I don't think, no. No, no. So he's the writer and director of that, and a lot of that is about this, this loner Mandalorian, but he always ends up with people and friends, and it's about his skill set being useful in these places and when it isn't there's a recurring theme to Favreau's work about talented individuals who need to refine the community and this is the same thing here I think that I talked a lot last time about how the jungle felt lived in and I think sometimes this this didn't have that same feeling at times mm. um, and sometimes it just felt like there was little scenes connected by random jungle and the geography was sometimes all over the place i wasn't quite sure from the geography that made a lot of sense yeah and then and then he picked up a torch from the man village and just ran to the wolf's rock and it felt like them traveling for ages together mm. but i will say i think the apart from that the effects really worked i mean when i first saw idris elba i saw shikhan all i could hear was idris elba or it was idris elba because his voice is so distinct Mm. Um, but after a while, I it just became Shere Khan. I just saw, you know, I just saw Baloo. I didn't see Bill Murray. I saw Ra rather than see Scarlett Hansen. Christopher Walken, I couldn't quite get past. I must say, no, such a distinct style of voice. It was really hard to see him. I and mean, having King Louis is a very set thing in my head. Yeah, um, he his his character departure was a very large one. Some something you mentioned right at the start is struck uh, I me mean, that the lots of the menace in this film, lots of the dark parts of this film, come from the fact that there is more than one baddie. And um, mm. in the first one, it, like you said, it very much feels like Shikhan is a baddie, and everyone else is. I mean, even someone like Carr, who is trying to kill Mowgli, is basically incompetent, and we know that. Um, but there are so many, and there was, and I picked up some of the links of the language. Like, um, one of the things Louis screams at Mowgli when he's chasing after him is "Listen to reason," which is exactly what Shere Khan says to the wolves. And it's this, like, all of these characters are linked by this, this sort of menace towards Mowgli. Mm. I thought that that was really effective, and that was. That was something that I really liked about this version. Uh, I do agree with that one, yeah. Do you have some recommendations for us, Sam? I do. So one of them is, I suppose it's a director link. I mean, it segues on quite nicely from what you were saying about um, John Favreau's films being about a talented individual who... who works with others and become it's about individuality in service of a team and the one that I immediately thought of when you when you mentioned that was my it's going to be my first um, recommendation this week it's the original Iron Man film mm. um, and I, I saw on one of the things I've done in lockdown is entirely pointless things like re-watching Marvel films um, so I, ha- I have seen Iron Man recently, and it struck me that it's actually a really good film. Um, mm-hmm. 
lots of the I mean we've talked about sort of superhero bloat and the the third act of superhero films nowadays being quite boring but I mean the, those early ones and that collaboration between Favreau and Dan Jr. It, it really hits home and I did really enjoy Iron Man um, my second recommendation is just an actor link based on Ben Kingsley who voices Bagheera um, and actually that, that was the same thing for, for me as for you with Idris Elba and Shade Khan. I spent sort of 10 seconds thinking, this is Ben Kingsley, I can't believe this is a panther. Um, and then it, he became Bagheera. Um, so Ben Kingsley was also in um, a fairly early Steven Spielberg film, um, Schindler's List from 1993. Um, this, like Iron Man, not really an under-the-radar pick. Um, blockbuster, if you like films, then you've seen Schindler's List. But I did want to mention this because this is certainly a worthy recommendation. This is a film that, I'll talk about the aesthetic of films this week and TV series, but this is one, the look and feel of this film and the message of this film as well has stayed with me a good, like, well over 20 years after I, after I saw it and I, I think I've only seen it once. So yes, that's my recommendation for a fairly mainstream watch this week. Iron Man and Schindler's List. Both great films and uh, interestingly, Ben Kingsley popped up in Iron Man 3 obviously as the uh, Mandalorian. My recommendations, I've gone one actor and one crew. My first recommendation comes uh, Idris Elba. We talked a lot about Shere Khan and he plays a very good bad guy and he's probably applied that trade quite a bit. Um, but he's also been very, very good, I think, as as the good guy. He only raised, to me personally, rose to prominence with Luther on TV. Um, but my recommendation, my recommendation is going to be the 2013 let's call it action sci-fi movie Pacific Rim um, which is about giant robots fighting giant monsters it's a Guillermo del Toro movie I think it's brilliant it's one of my favourite films um, I, I'm, I like kaiju movies I like monster movies I like robot movies he plays um, Stacker Pentecost is his character name he plays the sort of the captain of the robot teams and he is Stern and warm and everything you want an inspiring leader in him to be. He's absolutely great in it, and it's, I think it's a great film. We talked briefly about um, the look of this movie and the uh, sort of the feel of it and how I thought particularly it looked really good. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to the cinematographer, Bill Pope, who is a very, very famous and very well decorated um cinematographer who's done a lot of good things over the years um but i want to talk about particularly about a film that he did back in 1995 called clueless um it's not the most visually stunning of his work certainly but it's a film that i deeply enjoy i really like the adaptation of um Tammy of the Shrew, not Tammy Shrew, it's um, Emma, Emma for um, sort of California, America. It's a brilliant, brilliant film that I think Sam and I being of the age we are, Clueless was a large part of our growing up. 
Um, it was a big thing in our teenage years. And I don't know if it still is to this day. But if you haven't seen Clueless, I strongly, strongly urge you to see it because it's very of its time, but it's also absolutely brilliant. And he so shot that as well. Brilliant. Such a good film. Um, he has obviously done, a, like Bill Pope has done a lot of very, very brilliantly visual films. He did all the Matrix films. He did Spider-Man films. He did a lot of, he did Sp- Scott Pilgrim, which is a visually brilliant film. Um, so he's done a lot of good things, but I'm going to point out Clueless for this week. Brilliant. So, guys, we are continuing with our look at the um, live-action remakes of ongoing Disney movies. And next week, we are going to be jumping to possibly, he says, my favourite Disney film of all time. Um, And that's the 1991 film Beauty and the Beast. So we'll be back here in the new year now. So it will normally say two weeks, but we've got the new year and Christmas going on. So I can't guarantee the exact dates. But in the new year, we will return with Beauty and the Beast. Which which I, I have never seen. <gasps> I You've never seen Beauty and the Beast? No. Oh, wow. First time watching Beauty and the Beast. I, oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Prestige Podcast. You can drop me an email at prestigefilmpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me at FM. And we'll be back in a few weeks with maybe with a bonus episode of our top five films and back in the new year with Beauty and the Beast. <laughs>